When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Parenting is hard, period. Throw in the COVID-19 way of the world, and as a superhero would say, kaboom, pow. Parenting is a tough job, but one of the most beautiful and rewarding roles on this planet. Welcome to Theodora Speaks. Thank you for tuning in. Today's episode centers around raising successful, independent, driven, and kind people. Today, we will hear from a well-versed and well-known author, journalist, and mother to three successful daughters, Esther Wojcicki. It is my hope that you walk away from today's episode feeling empowered and insured about parenting and raising successful people. For there is nothing more important than our legacy. I asked Esther to be my guest to share her secret to raising successful people. And it's her trick method. And it's a recipe for empowerment that includes independence and trust. She's known as the godmother of Silicon Valley. Esther founded what is now the largest journalism program in the United States, a media arts project-based learning center at Palo Alto High School. She took a risk early on in her career when she traded the typewriter for a computer and then threw away textbook learning and brought about collaborative teaching. I mentioned she raised three successful daughters. Susan is the CEO of YouTube, Janet is a professor of pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. She's also a Fulbright-winning anthropologist. And Anne is the co-founder and CEO of 23andMe. Listen, for when Esther talks about how she brought about her teachings of trick methodology from the classroom and incorporated it into parenting and how those traits transfer to the business world. We're here today to talk about how to raise successful people. And Esther, impressive in your own right, you're a mother to three successful daughters, a wife, an author to not one but two books, a journalist, an educator, who's literally taught thousands of people around the globe how to think on their feet and run the school newspaper as if it were their own business with your your project-based learning method. Esther, welcome, and thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to speak with you. I appreciate it. So, Esther, you know, we've never met. This is the first time, but we have two things in common. I also was a journalism and English major back in the day, just like you. And then we're also called Woj. Oh, my God, that's so exciting. Yes, so I'm a Woj. The first person I met that's also had a similar nickname yeah so my maiden name is wolski and your last name is wojitski right so who gave you your nickname my students they they decided that my name was too long to say so they just like ah we're just cutting it down to three letters woj some people say woj other people say woj the kids are like they they just don't ever put misses there or anything it's just woj or Woj, or one of, one of the two. Very mm-hmm. exciting for me, actually. Yeah. I'm really, yeah. I love it. I love it. So it speaks to, you know, what you, you've done your entire life is reach children and change the way they they think and how they are as an adult. Yes. I That's, you know, I feel like that. And it's great because a lot of these kids are now 30s, 40-year-olds, and they still come back and want to talk to me and bring their kids and their husbands or wives. It's very exciting. I love it. Yeah. Feels like I have a very, very big family. Yeah, and you do. And you do. It's very impressive. You you brought up that your students are now parents. And so when we become parents, we go through this reinvention phase, rediscovering ourselves, and we have to wear the new hat of mother, father. 
still, and some of us still work, right? And we have these training wheels on with the hope that we do our best to raise good people who are resilient and self-driven. So take us back. You're the daughter of immigrants. Give us a brief overview of your childhood background. So my background is very different than the way that I brought up my children. Um, My parents were immigrants. Uh, They arrived in the 1930s and thought they were supposed to have arrived in the land of milk and honey. And of course, the 1930s in the U.S. was not very nice. And um, so my father was an artist. My mother didn't have a profession. She was a homemaker. And uh, so we didn't have a lot of money. And I was the first child in the whole family born in the United States. And so that was my claim to fame. Number one, born in the United States. Wow, we really have an American citizen here. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, However, growing up in without very much money actually led to a lot of poverty problems. And, um, and, and then also the other thing is that it was culturally very uh, different. Um, I came from an Orthodox Jewish family where they um, prioritize boys over girls. And it's really a religious reason. The boys are able to say the prayer for the dead and the women, girls can't do that. So um, it's kind of interesting. It's, of course, historic. And uh, so I was deprioritized. It was interesting how I grew up feeling very empowered and against Again, this was an accidental situation. And um, even though I wasn't, and uh, also they did not think that I should go to college. And so um, I was supposed to get married at the age of 18 or sooner and then have more children. And I sort of said, no, I don't want to do that. And uh, I went off to college. Um, I had to pay for it myself. And um, I decided I was just going to do it. I, I was going to go to college and I was going to be a, uh, you know, somebody other than someone's mother, mm-hmm. even though I ended, of course, being a mother. But uh, that was one of the um, the things that was probably the toughest thing that I had to do um, because I literally had to, you know, break away and do it. My childhood was very different than my children's childhood because my children were all valued just because they were, you know, either girls or boys when I had three girls. And I wanted, number one thing I wanted to do is empower them. I wanted them to feel comfortable in all situations. So I gave them a lot of opportunities to learn those situations or be in those situations. And they all grew up very happy and very empowered. Interestingly enough, I think the fact that they were, had a foundation where they were respected for who they are, it didn't really have a negative impact on them. Mm -hmm. And also they weren't always in a situation where they were trying to prove something. It's like, I'm better than you or whatever. They just like, oh, it's just, that's the way it is. Well, I'm just going to continue on my path. And if you want to behave like that, well, be my guest. You said trust and independence equal empowerment. I have this acronym in my book and that also I was using in my classes called TRIC. And it's um, it stands for trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. And, you know, it took me a while to figure out what I was doing with my children, what I was doing in my classes, why so many kids always wanted to sign up for the class. Um, I mean, I had to ask them, like, why are you signing up for this class? Why are you, what do you want to learn how to write and be in a journalism program. I mean, you could just be taking ceramics, right? Or art or something that is just easier. And the main thing that they said to me is because you trust us. And I, I when they said that, I didn't believe it. I just like, I, it didn't seem real. Mm-hmm. I was like, doesn't everyone trust you? But, you know, you tend to do things and then you don't realize that you're doing it yourself and other people aren't. You extrapolate from your experience and assume everybody's doing it. Sure. Well, it turns out they weren't. And um, so then I realized trust and respect were the really most important 
because I gave them a lot of independence. I collaborated with them and I always treated them with kindness. And you can't do that if you don't first trust and respect them. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's what I did. And I'd be remiss not to bring up, you mentioned the three daughters, but they're very successful. And I think successful is an understatement when you have a daughter that's the professor of pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco, the uh, co-founder of 23andMe, and then the CEO of YouTube. <laughs> yes, they they are really successful. They they went much farther than I ever ex- thought they would, you know, because I was just... I just wanted them to have a good job, you know, nice families. And um, it never occurred to me that they were gonna rise to be industry leaders. But needless to say, I'm very proud of them. And all the time, you know, they're doing a really good job and it's it's not an easy world now. And they're still navigating that world in a way that is very admirable. And um, so I think, and they all, I think that what I did when they were small children really has paid off because they're empowered, but they also understand how important it is to empower the people they work with. So leaders today, the most important thing for them to realize is that if you don't empower the people around you, you don't have a really strong team. Mm -hmm. And so that is one of the things that they do. And, you know, I've seen, evidence of this, especially in the pandemic, because we've had to make a lot of difficult decisions. And if you make those decisions with people, as instead of for people, you have more buy-in and you consult with them to make sure you understand what their needs are at the same time as you understand your needs and the company's needs. So 40 years retired, but you're continually giving back, right? You said you wanted to encourage the philosophy of independence and autonomy in students. And so you're carrying that through with this tracked learning. I saw you also are a HuffPost blogger, a Google Teacher Academy contributor. Yes, that's right. No, I I do all of those. And... um, I'm very excited to do this. I I mean, my my theory is that if you don't give back, your life is really empty. And, you know, I could just be sitting around having lunch or going to beaches or something like that, but that doesn't do it for me. I much rather work with kids or help people or do something that makes a difference. That's what gets me excited about life. And so that's what I'm doing. And um Yes, I am very active. Well, thank you for... Yes, well, thank you on behalf of everyone, uh, mothers out there, myself included, right, for continuing the education. So I think it would be fun. You said giving back. Let's go back in time and talk Mm -hmm. about when you first started teaching at Palo Alto and, you know, before the media arts program is what it is today, what you built it, right? You said that you took a risk and you threw away the textbook for collaborative teaching. And that's that was a big risk back then. And you traded your typewriter for a computer. Those are all really big risks. Um, the, the, I think the biggest one at that time was that, uh, this is in the middle of the 1980s, and the way you taught was lecture-based. Teacher in the front of the class lectures, students have a textbook, they write answers, you know, they take notes and so forth, and they don't talk. They listen to you all the time. So I realized pretty quickly, I was a few months after I started teaching, that this method not only bored me, the teacher, it was ineffective. I wasn't teaching them how to be journalists um, by having them read a textbook and then just answer the questions at the end of the chapter. It was just ridiculous. And so... um, I decided just to toss the textbook and I waited around to see if I would get fired. <laughs> well, happily, they didn't notice, and uh, which was kind of shocking. The only thing they didn't notice is that my enrollment in that program grew a lot and that the kids seemed really happy. And then I, the publication that we were doing started to improve. They're like, what is she doing in that class? 
And um, actually I did have to, I had a little battle because they basically said, there's too much noise in here. We don't understand what kind of teaching is going on. Why are the kids talking to each other? Why are they in groups? That is not appropriate. You sh they should just be listening to you. So I had to have a little collaboration with my students that was a little um, off the record. And that is I had to say, the next time they come in to evaluate, you need to sit quietly in your desk and do nothing and just pretend that that's the way it always is because otherwise they're going to fire me. And so the next time they came in, it was either the associate superintendent or the principal or somebody. The kids were like little mice, not a word. And then I thought it was, it was hilarious actually, because the, the next day they were like, they all like, did you pass? Did you <laughs> work? And then I said to kids like, not only did it work, the superintendent wanted to know like, how'd you do it? What'd you do to those kids? Uh -oh. Of course I never told them, but, <laughs> but it worked really well. And then we could go back to the collaborative learning because it was so effective. But um, it took a long time for the system to catch up with that collaborative learning idea. Um, I don't think, it wasn't until like early 2000 that it was okay to have collaborative learning. I just remember um, teachers used to have to send home a special form with the homework. And the form was parents had to sign, my child did this homework by themselves. No help from parents, no collaboration, no talking on the phone. You just did it yourself. And I was like, what? that is crazy. But it did, that didn't change until the early, the early 2000s. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy because as I don't remember any of collaboration growing up, right? I was very dictation in the classroom until I got to grad school in my 30s. And there was a lot of more group work, right? And that's what you see in real life when you go to work. Right. Well, that's right. You work in groups. And also the other thing is that you learn most effectively when you collaborate with someone else. And that's why Coursera that doesn't work right now, or maybe they're going to improve it. But you know, when you take one of those lecture based online courses by yourself, it's terrible. And their dropout rate is in, I think, 92% oh. dropout. Um, I think they're working on it as far and at least I hope they're working on it because there's so many people have put so much effort into it. And it's a great idea, but if it could be collaborative, then it would be more effective. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more, right? It's, it's instilling those values of, of good work ethic, right? And, and communication skills that is often missing today, right? A lot of kids are rather look at their phone and make eye contact with someone and have a conversation. That's right. Well, sometimes, you know, you go to a restaurant and you see four kids sitting at a table and they're all on their phone. It's like, oh, are you kidding? What are you guys doing? And sometimes if you ask them, they're texting each other, the one that's right next to them or taking a picture or it's like, really, you need to stop and start interacting with each other face to face. Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah. I'm with you in that boat. Yeah. Collaboration is the key. And all companies today realize the importance of it. And they're doing a lot more collaboration mm -hmm. in the workspace. Which is great, which is great. So right. during the time where you tossed the typewriter for the Apple computer, you <laughs> showed a side of yourself, Esther, that was very vulnerable to your students. And it actually warmed my heart because there was authenticity in your vulnerability. Do you mind sharing that story? Yeah, so um, yes, I was producing this new first newspaper on a typewriter, can you believe? And then I heard about computers. It was just an accident. I was walking by a shopping center in Los Altos and I saw one of those little Macs in the window. And I thought, oh my God, look at that. Let me see what it is. And I went in and played with it a little bit. And I was like, I want these. This is what I want. Because then my students can type and they can erase just backspace, you know? And on the old typewriters, it was a disaster. 
So I applied for a grant, the state of California, not knowing anything, right? Just, I want them. And I somehow got that grant because I remember everybody said, oh, it's a waste of time. I don't know why you're applying for this. Not only that, you won't get it. And then you won't be able to use them either because you don't know how. And so um, that's true. I didn't know how to use them. They all came. There were six of them in boxes. And yeah, what I had to do is I said to my students, you know, I don't know how to use these. I, I don't know how to make them work. And here they are in the back of the room. Do you guys want to help? Oh my God, it was like Christmas. They all loved it. And they opened them and I said, make sure the packaging stays in a certain way and everything else. And it took us a month, but we put them all together. We opened them, we figured out how to use them. They taught me, they were faster than I was. It's just amazing. And it was, it was really, really exciting. We had to rewrite some of the programs. Can you imagine? I didn't even know how to do that, but we, I learned how. But what I think I showed them was it was okay not to know something and to try to figure it out with the team. And it, it was very effective. And I think we were probably the first school in the California, probably the first in the country, I don't know, to start publishing a newspaper, high school newspaper on a computer. Mm -hmm. 1987. Wow. So you practiced not teaching to, but teaching with way back then. Teaching with. It was all collaborative. And I, sh that, you know, you can't believe I'm still in touch with the students, many of the students who are in that program. So, you know, I don't want to criticize them. I just want to show them that, in fact, by overhelping, they're disempowering their child. So don't clear the way. The, the thing that I think a good um, um, analogy is the snowplow parenting. So you clear the way. I did not clear the way. So for example, you know, my children had some teachers that were not so great. And my theory on that was everybody has some things in life that they don't like. You're going to have to learn how to get along with it. Because if I don't show you to, how to do that, then you're going to expect somebody to always rush in and help you. No, I am not going to rush in and help you. I will help you cope with the situation that you have. But that's about it. Mm -hmm. and, um, so I think it's really important for helicopter parents to let kids problem solve on their own. You know, I was at a, I, it was a talk a few weeks ago where somebody asked me, should we create um, difficult situations for our children on purpose to help them discover how to have grit? And I thought to myself, no, just let life happen. There's enough situations that you don't like in a regular daily situation mm -hmm. and you don't need to create it and make it more difficult. Just, just let them cope with the life that they have, the way that they hopefully um, will be able to. You know, so a two-year-old needs more help than a 10-year-old, of course. So, you know, two-year-old might need help finding your clothes or finding, putting the clothes on or things like that. But, you know, over-managing your older child just leads to them feeling less empowered and less secure about their own capabilities. Just need to be careful. Very good advice. And trust is sort of at the center of everything I'm hearing. Trust and respect, respect for their ideas. I mean, the reason that Palo Alto Media Arts Program has 10 publications is because I gave kids an opportunity to start publications they came up with, the own idea, their own ideas. I mean, some of those ideas I thought were really wacky. And I said, well, look, prove me wrong. Let you get a chance to do this. And I don't care, you know, what everybody says, try it out and see if it, how, if it works out. And so that's, you know, that's why there's so many publications because they're all aspects of kids and their interests. 
What I liked you mentioned in your book is those publications you said were published by the students, but even if it was an article that they were pursuing that was a bad idea, either they figured it out themselves or it got published and they saw that it, it didn't maybe get the accolades of some of the other articles, but it was their decision at the end of the day. Right. There were only just a couple of sort of rules that I always made them follow, and that is no obscenity, no inciting to riot, and being really careful not to not to have any libel. So not writing information about somebody that is not true. You always want to check your sources. So those were the three things. And the kids were really good about making sure that they didn't have any of those problems. And because in the state of California, the person who gets sued whenever there's a problem is the advisor, the teacher. Mm. And so I said to them, you know, I'm vulnerable. You guys are doing all this reporting. You're writing all these articles. There's hundreds of pages of text. And I want to make sure that I don't get sued. And you are in charge of making sure that I don't get sued. You can imagine the amount of trust involved in that. You know, you're dealing with 15-year-olds and they're going out and getting information on their own. It's like, you need to make sure you get the right information. Write it down. If you don't write it down, you can also record it. One of those two, but actually it's good to have both so you can have a backup. Mm-hmm. So that is what I did. So going back to trust, you were talking about the trust with the students, trust with with kids. In your book, you talked about how when parents break trust of their child, maybe you could kind of explain that a little bit and, and tie in the, the, the story of your daughter taking a quote unquote tour through Russia. But how do we as parents regain a child's trust after it's maybe been tarnished? Oh, so it's it's hard. It's it's best to prevent it, and it. But it. But if you do get into a situation where the, your child does not trust you because you've done something that warrants their distrust, then what the main thing that you should do is to talk to them about it. Say, I did something that I'm not proud of and that I'm sorry I did, and I want to tell you about it. And I want to tell you that I'm not going to do that again. And I mean, just being open and explaining and apologizing makes a huge difference because we all make mistakes. And so the idea is to show that, you know, I'm a parent, I'm supposed to know more than you do, but I too make mistakes. And if I do, this is the way out. This is, you apologize, you explain what happened, and then you say that in the future, you won't do that. And so that's what I would recommend for parents. And also for kids, if they also violate this, they can follow the same pattern. Sorry, I did this. I didn't realize what I was doing and I won't do it again. Mm-hmm. And I used to have my students, um, if they did something that was problematic, I would have them stay after school with me and then talk about it with me, but then also write about it. They all had to write. And then I had my daughters also writing about it, what they did and why we should change whatever it was they did. Talking about kindness, which you highlight in your book and that it's contagious, share with us how to be kind when kindness is hard. Kindness can be very hard sometimes, especially when there are people that are doing things to you that are not kind or when kids are doing things that are illustrate that they're not being kind. And so it's very, it's tough, but it's effective to, so to speak, turn the other cheek. Um, It works. And so I know that, you know, people or kids that have done things that were not kind, if they receive an act of kindness from you, they will change dramatically. 
And so that's one of the things that I think an adult has to be the leader. You as the parent or the teacher, you have to do that. And, you know, I know, you know, dealing with hundreds of kids and some of them made some crazy decisions sometimes that were not very smart. You know, when I was able to help them and forgive them, it changed them dramatically. And I'm still friends with some of those kids who are now in their 40s who did things that that I had to forgive them for easily and be really kind. It wasn't easy, I should say. It was tough. Um, but they never forgot you I, in that moment. Kids kids will never forget how you make them feel never they might forget what you taught them you know mathematics or you know facts of some kind but i swear they never forget how you made them feel and because i have parents of kids who come up to me i mean it's a regular basis when i'm walking down the streets and they say things like oh my son remembers when you did X, whatever it was. And, and you know, I, I have a few kids now in the state assembly of the California who like, I remember how much you liked my term paper. And, you know, this term paper might've been one where I said, hey, it looks like you copied a lot of stuff here. Um, I think that's not a very good thing. You know, that's called plagiarism. And let me tell you more. And anyway, they already knew what plagiarism is. I just played dumb as like, you need to fix this. So that, you know, because the, the penalty for plagiarism was pretty much being thrown out of school. Mm. And so, you know, the fact that I helped them and understood what they were doing, it was something they did out of fear. And so can I help them understand and not do it? And it worked. I'll tell you, it works all the time. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you're also a gardener. Because when I was finding, well, I was finding those TikToks of you and your grandchildren, and I saw those ginormous onions from your garden. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yes, I'm a gardener. I love gardening. And not only that, I talk to plants. So something weird must happen. See, can you see my orchid? It's gorgeous. It's huge. I talk to it every day. So it's been like this. Honestly, I think it's like two months. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. So what's your favorite thing to grow? Well, the the easiest thing to grow and the most delicious quickly is tomatoes. Have you ever grown tomatoes? I gave it a whirl this summer, cherry tomatoes. Yeah, so tomatoes, um, cucumbers, um, squash, um, berries. I mean, literally, we grow everything. That's amazing. I have two girls, Esther, two and four, and we love to garden. We don't have a huge garden, but it just teaches them some great skills. We love to cook together and, you know, go cut the the sage and the thyme and the tomatoes, pick the tomatoes and put them in the salad. It's really fun. It's. I'm so glad you said that because that's something simple that everybody can do. Even if you live in an apartment in New York City, just get a little flower pot and some dirt and seeds. Let the kids do it and let them water it every day or every week or whatever it takes. And yes, I mean, it's much easier than taking care of a dog. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it also teaches them responsibility. Yes, which is huge. It's, which is really huge, you know, because you can't go away for two weeks and leave your plant because it's going to die. <laughs> Right. So you don't have to have somebody come and water it. So you have to have responsibility built in. It's real. It works really well, actually. Mm-hmm. And to your point earlier, it builds some independence too, right? They can water the plants themselves. Right. And also they can pick what they want to grow themselves. You know, there's all those seed pictures you can go out and pick and grow whatever you want. Um, I mean, some kids I could just hear this, like, I want to grow a tree, mom. 
sure, you can start in this little pot here. <laughs> you can grow it. Right. And then call Esther to talk to it. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely right. Yes. So I burning question, what keeps you up at night? Um, I'm, I'm working so much. You know, I'm trying to change education. And I've been trying for years. And it looks like I finally have an audience now, people listening. And so that keeps me up at night. It's like, what can I do to make sure that um, that this is going to happen? How can I make it so that it's good for teachers, good for parents, and good for students as well? And so, so far, you know, that's where I came up with this tracked idea because it works for kids, it works for younger kids, older kids, parents, um, teachers. It, it's a way for kids to share what they know. I know airplanes, we all try to fly airplanes, you know, those little paper things. But this is a kid that actually is showing other kids how to really create an airplane that goes fast. And, um, you know, it's things like that, that make you excited and make the kids excited. So that's what I spend my time doing. And I, I know it sounds crazy. I should probably be spending my time sitting on some beach, you know, doing nothing. But that's not me. <laughs> and it will never be me. But a little R&R can recharge those batteries. But you, you bring up a great point. You have some momentum in the education you know, system. Everything's a digital world today. And a lot of companies are becoming more digital as they transform. And so, you know, that's education as well. Right. I think that makes a big difference. And also, I have so many students, hundreds, thousands of them, that all want to do the same things. So I have some momentum. Um, and a lot of them are in different fields. So there could be CEOs or doctors, lawyers, you know, artists, whatever. But they all know what it feels like to have somebody believe in you. Mm -hmm. And that is what I would like to get for all kids. Because most kids coming out of the school system will tell you nobody believed in me, mm -hmm. which is really sad, okay. I think. You know, it's just, did you do well on this test? Kids have a hard time finding two teachers to write a recommendation for them. Why is that? It's because they're afraid that the teacher won't think that they're good enough to write a recommendation. Mm. And um, so they're very hesitant about it, which goes to show, in my opinion, that that student doesn't feel supported by that teacher. And it affects so, their confidence. It affects their confidence, yeah. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I'd like to be able to um, change the system in such a way that kids could actually do projects, uh, teaching other kids how to do projects. And uh, like, that's just the latest thing I've been thinking about for Tract, which is, you know, it's a, it's a leadership training tool for older kids, but it also is a way to show colleges how you teach and what your leadership skills. And if you have a lot of kids that follow you, you know, how you've had an impact. So I was just thinking about that as a, as a, another step for tract. I think that because, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, there's nothing else out there like that. There isn't. And I think a lot of institutions would benefit from it as would the students to help with their confidence. I left corporate America to start this venture that I have, and it's helping women in STEAM take their professional risks in their career to re reinvent themselves. And what mm -hmm. I've noticed the last year of the research I've been doing is the corporate ladder is still built for, you know, men in general, but really that gender gap starts at the entry level of the ladder. Why? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the women in these STEAM professions don't have the confidence to go after the next job up the, up the rung. And I right. truly believe it starts at home and within the universities. You're absolutely right. It starts at home and within the universities. And what can we do to give them more uh, faith in themselves, self-confidence? Um, and I think there's a lot we can do. And this might be one small step, but... Uh, you know, just like in computer science, I go to all these computer science events 
and they're like 90 percent men mm-hmm. there and i was like where'd all the women go you know you guys can also you can code too you know coding is not based on sex you know it's or gender it's based on whether you're interested in it or not and and coding is like a language and it's okay it's a language to speak to computers but the same kinds of skills go into learning that language as go into learning french or german or whatever and so and there's no shortage of women who speak other languages so why is that a shortage in computer science. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's cultural. I think so too. I think there's the unconscious bias that still exists today. You know, we've come a long way in the last hundred years, fifty years, but there's still steps for us to take. So, you know, thank you for still being vested and not fully retired. <laughs> yeah. No, I just I'm not sure I'm going to ever retire because you know my vocation became my avocation. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I love education, I love teaching, I love working with students and parents. And, you know, that's where, that's what matters to me. So I don't know, I guess I could take a vacation for a week. There you go, maybe at least, or maybe two, maybe two, Esther. Maybe two, yeah. <laughs> but I realized also during the summer, during the, you know, the holidays, teachers were, you know, you, you forget about everything and you're like, oh my God, all these things that I was doing and oh, I'm going to have to start doing it all over again. And, you know, it's hard to get up to speed again. It really is. And um, I, I always liked my summer vacations because I always did things that I thought were really exciting and fun and enriching. I could share it with the students and that I would like to still keep some of that but then I still want to be involved with students or parents. I really like working with parents. Mm. For me, it's like, it's really, it's exciting. See those cute little kids and their parents. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. the parents could use as much help, myself included, as the kids, you know, in learning your trick method and having more patience. I could definitely have more patience as a mom, a working mom. Right. So you still are also very active with journalism. I saw you're uh, on the board of Newsium and the Freedom Forum. So I'm on the board of the Newsium, the Freedom Forum, and now I'm on the board of the NAMLI. Do you know what that is? National Association of Media Literacy. Oh. Um, so that's one that is also very dear to my heart. I think all kids need to have media literacy training. I mean, my students loved it when I taught them about anything connected with media or the web or anything like that. I mean, the bell would ring and no one would leave. And it's like, it's time to go, you guys, next class. But then my class that was seventh period, kids just didn't go home. They just stayed. But they're really engaged in anything technology technology related. Um, it's, it's a great opportunity for us to make sure that kids understand media and not only just as consumers but also if they want to be a producer you know if you want to write a blog or if you want to do a medium blog or you or whatever it is you should know how to do that and feel comfortable Mm -hmm. so to that point esther in your own opinion what is the state of journalism today i think it's in bad shape unfortunately. And the reason is because of the previous four years of the former president um, accusing all these people of fake news. You know, I, I couldn't believe that this was happening because all these people on professional publications work really hard to make sure that their sources are good, that they represent both sides. It was just I thought it was really bad, but the worst part is that some people believe them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why we have this vaccine controversy going in the country, the mass controversy, because people are like, I don't believe it. And they're, they don't believe the traditional press. So then I said, you know, why don't you guys take a look at the training that journalists have? What do they actually learn? What are the principles of journalism? 
And you, you see that they are trying to represent everyone fairly, and especially the underdog. And so let's re-examine the role of the press. The role of the press is so important in a democracy. And that's part of the reason I decided to be part of uh, National Association of Media Literacy, because I think everybody needs to have that. I, I would like to say media literacy in every school. Every student should have a media literacy program. I love it. So and I, yes, I can't agree more with you and the fact that it is a mess. You know, being a journalism undergrad major, you brought up a great point, Esther. It's representation of both sides. That th that's the integrity of journalism, and it's right. lost today. And we need to get that back. Right. We need to get it back. I think it's coming back slowly, but it's, I mean, it's confounded also with the vaccine misinformation, I guess, is the only way to say it. Um, and there's a lot of that out there. I posted this cartoon that I thought was true and very representative. And it was a young, it was an older couple sitting watching TV saying polio would still be an epidemic <laughs> if uh, we had the media literacy or the media problems that we have today because people wouldn't have taken the vet polio vaccine. And um, I mean, I just cannot believe it. You know, I've taken vaccines, well, I've traveled around the world. So I've had a lot of crazy vaccines that most people have never had, including yellow fever vaccine and typhoid and typhus. And because I went to all these different places in, in Africa and South America. And, you know, I got sick from the yellow fever vaccine, but then I didn't get yellow fever. Mm, <laughs> thankfully, know? right. Yeah, I was sick for about three days, but honestly, and I've had the vaccine. You know, I had actually I had my third shot because I qualified and I never had any reaction at all. None, zero, you know, just my arm hurt a little bit. Wonderful. For a few days. And it was like, okay, I'll take that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think we've had a, a real media issue in this country, sorry to say. So where do you see the future of journalism and your crystal ball going and where would you like it to go? Well, I think the future of journalism will go hopefully back to where it was. I think it's going to get better because if we want to save our democracy, journalism is at the core of that. You cannot have a democracy without a strong press. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to get your information either online or in hard copy and believe it. And it's so critical. And so I think we're headed back toward that. And I'd like to be able to make sure that all students in high schools, colleges everywhere have this training. It's not hard, it takes maybe what, 10 weeks at the most and then you're trained for life. I love it. I love it. Well, I'd love to help you in any way I can, right? Because I, I'm yeah. a firm believer that, that we need that. So thank you for sharing your words of wisdom there. If we switched gears and went back to your trick method, Esther, the last question I have for you, what advice would you give to our listeners to make trick more of a priority in their work-life integration? Such a great question. Well, um, I'm working uh, with another author and we're possibly writing another book that's going to talk about that exact thing because trick needs to be part of your work life, your work life environment. And companies need to treat their employees with trick. And we have now the great resignation. And why is everybody leaving? Because they realize actually that they can work from home on something they care about, be trusted and respected, and then not have to deal with all that other stuff. So can we have employers treat people like people? You know, you have all kinds of issues. I mean, some of the employers here in Silicon Valley are doing that. I mean, it shouldn't just be Silicon Valley, it should be everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, you are not 
buying somebody's soul for eight hours. You know, these are people and they have feelings and we need to take care of them. And we need, if they make a mistake, well, so they made a mistake. And so they need to go and rectify it and next time. But you shouldn't, there shouldn't be grudges. There shouldn't be other issues. We need to teach, treat people much, much better. As we wrap today, it's been exciting to talk to you about the wisdom in your trick methodology. And there's a lot of anxiety today from parenting to working to balancing that work-life integration. You wrote Roge's tips on how kids have helped their parents during the pandemic. So to ease the angst, what advice would you give parents raising kids post-pandemic? First of all, don't call it a learning loss. I think of it as an alternative learning. And kids are able to adapt more readily and easily than their parents. Those kids that you just like, oh, it's my son or my daughter, you know, they're little computer geniuses, by the way, and you've got them right there in your house. They can figure out all the tech problems that you are having. Just let them help you. They're really smart. And they are also really creative. So it's an opportunity for you to let your kids shine. I mean, all my grandchildren, I've got 10, they all did amazing alternative things in the pandemic. And these are things they never would have done before. I mean, one of my grandchildren went on a, a whole month backpacking trip and I don't know, in, I've forgotten if that oh, was the lakes in Michigan. And she was freezing. That's why I remember it was lakes. But you want to make your kids aware of the fact that they endured this pandemic and they survived and did well. And so you want to give them a sense of accomplishment instead of telling them that they are somehow deficient because they have a learning loss. So I'm writing a whole blog on this. No learning losses, in my opinion. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to staying in touch. Yes, I do too. A special thank you to Esther Wojcicki for sharing her parenting skills, her trick methodology, and book with us. Thank you to you, our valued listeners. You have a lot of podcasts to choose from, and I'm elated you're here. And a new voice studios for producing Theodora Speaks. The three key takeaways from today's conversation with Esther are the trick method instills empowerment in children that lasts their entire life. Collaboration teaches lifelong skills applicable to the business world. And lastly, self-sufficiency instills independence, that ability to think, act, do on your own, starting from a young age all the way through adulthood. Please visit gailkeller.org and sign up for my newsletters. I can help you successfully fail forward in your career without the crash and burn. Thank you and stay courageous. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.